today. And our scripture reading this morning, it comes from Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. John Calvin, in his most famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, some of the opening lines say that nearly all of the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and which brings forth the other is not easy to discern. Now what he's saying in that quote is that there is a relationship between our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of God. It's a complicated relationship, but when we see God rightly, we will see ourselves rightly. And when we see ourselves and God rightly, then the world will see him through us. But on the other hand, when we don't see God rightly, we cannot see ourselves rightly. And the world will not see him through us. And Jonah is the perfect example of this. In our passage, Jonah describes himself, he says, I am a Hebrew. And I fear Yahweh. I fear the Lord. That's how he thinks of himself. That's how he views himself. That's how he describes himself to everyone in the world. And yet, everything in his life at this moment is telling a different story. He says that he worships God, that he reveres God. And meanwhile, he is literally... <laughs> trying to run away from God. He's trying to escape his presence, and he's putting other people's lives in danger in the process. The faith that he proclaims with his mouth, and then the message that he displays with his life, they don't match up at all. And what's worse, he seems to be totally unaware of it. He, he cannot see the inconsistency. He cannot see himself clearly. And unfortunately, Jonah isn't alone in that. There are plenty of people out there who call themselves Christians, 
People who describe themselves as followers of Christ, who profess to know God and to worship him and to love him, and yet whose lives do not correspond with the faith they profess. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about that dynamic, and I want to break it down under a few different headings. I want to talk about what inconsistent lives tell the world about God. And then I want to talk about how do we fix that? What is the fix for our inconsistency? And finally, what is the impact that gospel people can have in the world? So let's do that. What do inconsistent lives tell the world about God? So we're now a couple of weeks into the study of Jonah. You may remember back when God first called Jonah, he told him to go and preach the gospel, to not preach the gospel, but to preach a message of repentance and return to the Ninevites, these evil people who were doing evil things, these enemies of the people of Israel. And the way he called him in verse 2, he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, there's a little bit of irony that starts out our passage this morning. God says the reason you need to go to Nineveh is because their evil has put them in the position where they have earned God's wrath and his judgment, and they need to hear about that. But now, in our passage, just a few verses later, we find out that Jonah's rebellion, his rebellion against God, has brought up another kind of evil. Verse 7, the sailors, when they're fearing for their lives, they say to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon me. Now, that is the same word. It's the same word in the Hebrew, and it's not a coincidence at all. The author wants us to see this. Jonah has refused to go to Nineveh because he didn't want to preach to those evil, godless people. But the irony is, his actions have the same consequence as theirs. He is living in opposition to God just as much as they are. Now, he views himself as this God-fearing Hebrew. But he cares far more about his own will, far more about his own plans than he does God's. Now, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us this famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm imagining most of us here are, are familiar with it, but if you're not, let me just give you a, a quick refresher. Jesus, in, in John 15, he tells the story of a father who has two sons. And the younger son comes to the father and asks for his inheritance early. And the father agrees and gives him half of his possessions, and he takes them off to a foreign land, and he squanders everything. He makes a mess of his life. He ends up hitting rock bottom, and then he is, decides to return to his father in this state of desperation, this place of humiliation. And in the gospel, this is how Jesus says, he says, when the father saw him, he ran out to that son, and he welcomed him. 
And he said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. But the second half of that parable is about the elder brother. The other brother who, when he found out about all this, that his younger brother had returned and the father was having a big party for him, Jesus tells us that he was angry. And he refused to go into the party. And so his father came out and he entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, returns, you killed the fattened calf for him. That story that Jesus tells, it ends with the elder brother, the good brother, the one who never rejected him, who never rebelled. He's the one who's standing out in the field, clinging to his own sense of what's fair, clinging to his own sense of what's right. And where is he standing? Apart from the Father, outside of the celebration. It's incredible how our own sense of rightness can blind us. In fact, I'd argue that it is more often for us in the church, it's our sense of our own goodness that prevents us from knowing God's love, from knowing his mercy, a lot more than our sense of our our own outright rebellion does. It's that feeling that we are right, that we are good, that we're fine as, as we are, that we don't need that much help. That's what prevents us from really knowing God deeply, from knowing him personally. And unfortunately, you see it a lot. You see it a lot in the church. It's very easy for Christians to become experts, right? For us to learn a lot about God, to have good theology and and good doctrine. But you frequently find these, these Christians who know so much about God, and yet it seems like that knowledge, it doesn't translate to everyday life. All this knowledge about Jesus has somehow not transformed their hearts to actually make them more like Jesus. Instead of living lives that are full of compassion, living lives where we are desiring to reach the lost world around us, instead we view ourselves as good people. And we're bitter. That God just doesn't come and and punish all these bad people around us who are doing the wrong thing. Who aren't following God the way we expect them to. When Jesus shared the story of the prodigal son, do you remember the setting? Do you remember what made him share that parable in the first place? In Luke 15, it starts out this way. It says, now the tax collectors 
and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus then goes into these stories. He tells those stories because the religious people, the ones who knew all the rules, the, the quote, good people, were grumbling because this rabbi, Jesus, was spending his time and his energy with the people who they deemed unworthy. And Jonah is the same way. In both instances, the religious people, the ones who feared the Lord, were the ones who were standing unflinchingly against the will of God. The religious people in these stories are the ones who are grumbling and complaining and resisting God's will. Rather than being ambassadors of a holy and loving God, they were instead self-concerned and self-righteous. And again, I want you to hear, this is not an abstract problem. This is not a problem that is confined to parables and, and prophets. This is the reality that we live in today. David Kinnaman, who's a, a researcher, uh, wrote a book where, where he, using research from Barna and some other places, it said that the number one perception outsiders hold about the church is that we are hypocritical and that we are judgmental. He says most people look at the church and they say Christians are hypocritical and they're judgmental. They say we say one thing but we do another. Now I had the chance this week to sit down with a, a real live Gen Zer and talk to him about faith. And as I was talking to him about the basic teachings of Christianity, uh, it was a really interesting experience. This, this person had not grown up in the church at all. He, he may have been one of the most unchurched people I've, I've ever talked to, honestly. I asked him uh, if he knew the Ten Commandments, and he said, I think I've heard of them before. And as we're talking about Christianity, what became clear to me was that his objections weren't really about Jesus. They weren't so much about the idea of salvation, but what had discouraged him from ever looking into Christianity or exploring the faith was the exposure he had had to Christian people in his life. He thought that his, his, uh, the, the Christians who he had known were just off-putting people. To him, they seemed like people who were mostly concerned about getting their way and telling other people how they should live. In other words, this guy hadn't heard very many sermons in his life, and yet the lives of Christians had already preached a message to him. Our lives preach loudly to the world around us. Especially when it comes to the ways we engage the non-believing world. 
Do you realize that? The world sees how we react. The world sees how we behave when we don't get our way. Do we winsomely engage the opposition with the gospel? Or do we fight culture wars and hope to crush our opponents by gaining political power? They see the way we react to the news, even. Do we have peace? Do we trust in a sovereign God? Or are we fearful and anxious about what those people are going to do? Do we respond to God's call to go and preach to those who are far off? Or do we run away and wall ourselves off? Inconsistent and unloving lives preach a destructive message to the world. And so the question is, what message is your life preaching? What message is my life preaching? What message are we preaching through our actions? Well, the next thing I want to talk about is the fix for this inconsistency. You know, all three of the figures that I kind of have talked about so far, they all lack insight. Jonah, the elder brother in Jesus' story, the Pharisees that Jesus was speaking to, none of them realized how inconsistent their lives were. They didn't realize the inconsistency of their witness. They didn't realize that they were living a life that totally contradicted the faith they were proclaiming. So how can we know? How can we ever see ourselves rightly? I opened up by mentioning that quote from Calvin, that all knowledge in the world is broken down into knowledge of God and of ourselves. And it's important to understand, when, when Calvin spoke about self-knowledge, he wasn't really talking about what we might think of as self-knowledge. It wasn't about necessarily uh, psychology. It wasn't about introspection. But what he was talking about was what you might call Godward self-awareness. The self-knowledge that Calvin was talking about is a knowledge of ourselves that can only come when we see God as he truly is. A knowledge of ourselves that can only come when we see God as he truly is. So Jonah, what does he think of himself? Well, here's who he says he is. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, according to an Old Testament scholar, that word fear, when it's used with a, a deity as the object, that word fear, it means to respond, to recognize the deity's power, and to respond submissively to that power. But of course, that's not the kind of fear that Jonah has. Jonah hasn't responded submissively to the power of God. No, the kind of fear that Jonah has is the way that we think about fear. It is a, an anxious fear. It's a fear about what might happen. He's running away from God because he's afraid of what's going to happen if he listens to God. 
He's afraid of what God might do if he goes and, and obeys him to go preach to these people in Nineveh. It's a fear that comes from his inadequate view of who God is. His partial picture of God. Jonah ran because he did not see God clearly. Jonah ran because Jonah couldn't see himself clearly because he couldn't see God clearly. He, he wasn't able to see the true state of his heart because the God he was serving was, was less than who God really is. So if Jonah is a negative example of this Godward self-awareness, I think a positive example that we can find in Scripture is of another prophet, uh, the prophet Isaiah. Near the beginning of his ministry, in Isaiah chapter 6, we read this account. It says, this is Isaiah saying that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now that is a picture of what I'm, I'm calling this Godward self-awareness. That is a picture of what happens when we see God clearly. When we see God for who he really is. When we see ourselves in light of him. Sometimes you might hear people in the world saying, you know, if I could see God face to face, well, I'd, I'd tell him something. I remember, uh, you know, the onion, the fake newspaper that's online and stuff like that. Well, there was a time period where they had some video sketches and things like that. And, and there was one where uh, the interviewer was reporting back, you know, to the news team. And he's saying, we've got an exciting interview here. We are about to see the living God. He's going to come, and we're going to ask him some questions. And there's an empty chair in front of him. And he says, he's going to be here any moment, and we've got a lot of questions to ask him about how things are going on in the world. Oh, he's coming now. Okay. And this kind of void starts to open up in the middle of the air. And then immediately the, the interviewer just starts pleading for his life. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. It was actually a pretty accurate sketch. <laughs> That's actually what scripture is like when people encounter a holy God. There is no illusion when people encounter true holiness that you have any leg to stand on. People despair of themselves. There's no room for grandstanding. There's no place for pride. Whenever we see God clearly, we could never dream of approaching him the way the elder brother approaches his father. I've done everything right. Why are you treating me so unfairly? No. It's ridiculous. 
When we see God as he truly is, those things that we read about in the Westminster Confession, right? The, the definition of perfection and righteousness and justice. When we see him as he truly is, we realize that our lips are unclean. That our hearts are deceitful above all else. That even the greatest good deeds that we have ever done are full of mixed motivations. It's, it's all just filthy rags. And that is the beginning of the journey. Here's how Calvin completes that thought that I quoted to you earlier. He said, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good and purity of righteousness, it rests in the Lord alone. Goodness is in him, not in us. He says, we cannot seriously aspire to God before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. The first thing that will erase the inconsistency of our lives, the first thing that will bring us into conformity, that will expose the inconsistency of our hearts and give us a clear vision of how little we have to offer to a holy God is to see him. To see that we have no leg to stand on before the Lord. We need to see ourselves and see him. That he's holy and that we aren't. That he doesn't owe us anything. In fact, if, if he were to put all of our thoughts and all of our emotions, and all of our actions throughout of our, our lives, just put them on display, and then give us what we deserve for that, well, that would be the end of us, wouldn't it? But of course, it's, it's not the end, because here's what happens in, in that Isaiah passage. It says that then one of the angels flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So I am very slowly reading through the biography of a hero of mine, Pastor Jack Miller. Um, he was a pastor. He was a theologian. His, his whole ministry had a great impact on a generation of leaders that is just retiring now, um, but his bi biography, I really like it, but the title of the biography is Cheer Up, and it's called Cheer Up because his catchphrase throughout his life was this, Cheer Up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and Cheer Up, you're more loved than you ever dared hope, and that's the gospel. That is the one-two punch that will cure the inconsistency in our lives. 
That is the message that, that exposes the full measure of God's holiness and the depths of our sin. That is where we go to, to recognize the, the full abundance of his mercy and his grace. That he would forgive somebody like us. That he would welcome us in. And when that happens to us, it removes our ability to judge anyone else as being unworthy. Instead, it gives us a heart of compassion. Where we look at this lost world around us and, and, and we're filled with love for them. And a longing to see them welcomed in just like we have been. That's the cure for our inconsistency. Knowing ourselves that we could know God. Losing our trust in ourselves that we could trust God. And that brings me to the third point, which is what difference is that going to make? What is the impact of gospel people living these kinds of lives in the world? What impact will it have if, if you and I have this Godward self-awareness? If we're increasingly unimpressed with ourselves and in awe of God and his goodness. If we're regularly placing our lives bare before him, praying with the psalmist, search me and know my heart. If we're living in a state of that Isaiah-like repentance, woe is me, and then getting that spirit-filled cleansing and renewal. Well, I'll tell you what would happen. Well, first of all, God would be glorified. He would be glorified in, in my life, and in yours. And second of all, it would reveal Christ to our neighbors. See, the sailors on this ship, when they found out who Jonah was, they were appalled. When they found out who Jonah was, they were appalled by the incongruity of his life. Did you hear what their response was? They said, what is this that you have done? How could you do this? If that's who you are, how could you live like this? If that's who you are, how could you have so little concern for us? How could you rebel against your God and bring us into your punishment? How could you pull us into the consequences of your sin? See, inconsistent lives, they point people away from the living God. But when we see ourselves clearly, then we have a really great message we can proclaim. That yes, while we are of salvation, Jesus, our Savior, he was not like Jonah, right? He responded to God's call with obedience. And where Jonah 
pulled these men into the consequence that came from his sin, every single one of us who would repent of our sin and turn to Christ by faith, well, the gospel is that Jesus pulls us into the blessings that come from his perfect obedience. To know yourself and to know God is to be a person who is rooted in the gospel. When we see ourselves clearly, we'll see our neighbors differently. They won't be bad people. They won't be evil people. They won't be the foolish enemies who need to be corrected and corralled and contained. But they will be the lost people who, just like us, need to be found. So I want to invite you today, as we wrap this up, to join me in a prayer of repentance. This is something that I think will be really helpful for me as I head to this table. I want us to pray that God would expose any places in our hearts where we may have gotten off course. That he would open our eyes so that we wouldn't be like Jonah, that we would see any of the blind spots, that we would see ourselves clearly and see him clearly and show him to the world. And so the way I want to do this is with an ancient prayer. Uh, This is one from St. Augustine. A prayer that simply God would show us ourselves so that we could see him. I'll read it for you, and then we'll just take a moment in silence. Augustine prays, Lord Jesus, let me know myself and know you, and desire nothing save only you. Let me hate myself and love you. Let me do everything for the sake of you. Let me humble myself and exalt you. Let me think of nothing except you. Let me die to myself and live in you. Let me accept whatever happens as from you. Let me banish self and follow you and desire ever to follow you. Let me fly from myself and take refuge in you that I may desire to be defended by you. Let me fear for myself. Let me fear you. Let me be among those who are chosen by you. Let me distrust myself and put my trust in you. Let me be willing to obey for the sake of you. Let me cling to nothing save only you. Let me be poor because of you. Look upon me that I may love you. Call me that I may see you and forever enjoy you. Let's take a moment. Lord, thank you that you clothe us with the righteousness of Christ, that you pull us into the blessings of your obedience.
But we ask this morning, Lord, that you would expose any areas of disobedience, any places of hardness and self-righteousness that we can't see. I pray it first for myself. Lord, I know how quick I can be to think of myself too highly. God, open my eyes. Show me those who I view as being unworthy of your love and far from my status. Change our hearts. Lord, use us to bring your good news to the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.